So yeah, I knelt on this ID, exploded, ripped off both my legs, below the knee on my right arm, above the elbow. When the lads are back on parade, I'm not going in a wheelchair, I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with them and get my medal pinned on my chest, stood upright. We're going to his tibia and fibula. Then they're like, we can't because he hasn't got any. So what they did, they made some very courageous and brave decisions. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Smartcast and Najahi Events. More about them later. Today's guest of the podcast has been through one heck of a story. In the early hours of Christmas Eve 2007, Royal Marine Commando Mark Ormrod was out on routine foot patrol in Afghanistan when he stepped on and triggered an IED. He was airlifted to an emergency hospital and medics performed an innovative and dangerous procedure on board the helicopter that saved his life. He woke up three days later in Birmingham in the UK with both legs amputated above the knee, his right arm amputated above the elbow. He was the UK's first triple amputee to survive the Afghanistan conflict. During his recovery, doctors told him he'd never walk again and he should prepare himself for the rest of his life in a wheelchair. It would have been understandable for Mark to give up, but he didn't. To the contrary, he used his setback as a springboard for growth and reinvention. Today, Mark is an internationally acclaimed motivational speaker, a peak performance coach, and an author. He is a relentless charitable fundraiser and a daredevil who has performed stunts that many able-bodied athletes would find daunting. In 2022, he won 11 medals in the Evictus Games and has raised more than £500,000 through different charity challenges to support veterans. He has not used a wheelchair since 2009, and he jokes about the fact that children call him Iron Man because of his high-tech prosthetic legs. I can't wait to speak to this guy. Cue the music for the amazing Mark Ormerod. I want to introduce you to the sponsors of the podcast. Smartcast have been at the forefront of food security for the world for the last few years. Now, if you don't know what food security is, hear me out. By 2050, there'll be 10 billion people on the planet and there won't be enough food to go around. So Smartcast are at the forefront of agritech, finding solutions so that we can grow enough crops in a smart tech way to make sure we feed the planet. Go check out Smartcast at Smartcast Tech. That's S-M-A-R-T-K-A-S-T-E-C-H. Go to their Instagram page, give them a follow, look at what they're doing. It's incredible. Najahi Events have been a sponsor of our podcast since the very beginning. I've got massive respect for Alpha Mustafa, the founder, and the great work she does bringing motivational speakers and inspirational leaders here into the region to inspire and educate us all. Go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I Events, on Instagram, give them a follow, sign up to their mailing list and see who they bring here into this part of the world. Because I tell you something, if it's not Tony Robbins, it's someone almost as big. So Mark, thanks very much for coming to join us on the show today. You've got quite an incredible story to tell. And you know, a lot of the time I kind of fanny around when I start my podcast and go into some wishy-washy stuff, but I just want to get stuck into it. You know, I want to understand a little bit about why you became a Marine, how, how that happened for you, because I've got family members in the military as well. And remembering how they got into the forces was interesting for me. And then uh, what happened? Because I think that's the small part of a very big story to me. It's kind of like what happened after is what, what really made you. So let's go to the beginning. How on earth did you join the military? What was the driver there? So I live uh, in Plymouth and I was born here. It's a very big military city. We've got a huge naval base, uh, 
a couple of Royal Marine bases, a whole bunch of army bases. I think the only thing we don't have is, is RAF. Um, so you, you could say, I guess, it was inevitable that I was going to go into the armed forces at some point in my life. But when I was growing up, all of my friends that I grew up with that lived around the same area that I lived were like two or three years older than me when we were at school. So when I was coming up towards the end of my compulsory education, they had already left and they were off at university or in their careers or whatever they were doing. And a handful of them were in the armed forces. I had a friend who was in the tank regiment in Germany, one that was in the Marines, a couple that were in the army and the Navy scattered all around the UK. So they kind of, as I was coming towards the end of school, their lifestyles and, and the things they did kind of influenced my, my decision, I think. You know, and I was coming up towards the end. I was about 15 and a half. And I thought, when I take these exams, you know, pass, fail, whatever, I need to decide what I'm going to do in my life. Am I going to go to college, to uni, or am I going to jump into the big bad world and start a career? Now, I actually did pretty well. I got all my GCSEs, all 10 of them, nine A to Cs. I only got one D, so I could have easily went into college, university, whatever. But whenever my friends were coming home on summer leave, Easter leave, Christmas leave, I would see them with what I thought back then was pockets full of cash, new cars. They're out on the beer every weekend. They're always telling me these stories of, well, these weapons they were playing with and these fitness tests they were doing. And so I'm at this point in my life, I'm like, what do I want to do? Which, which way do I want to go? And I was like, right, I really like what they're telling me when they come back. So I'm going to join the army. So my friend John, who was in the tank regiment in Germany, was at home. And he took me down to the Armed Forces Career Center. And I spoke to the army recruiter. He gave me the paperwork. I was only 15 and a half years old. So I had to take it home to give to my parents to sign, to get their permission. And then my dad told me, or he asked me, he said, do you know you've got an uncle who was a Royal Marine? And I'm like, no. Now, so you know you have those people in your family that you grow up calling an uncle. They're not actually your uncle. They're like your nan's yeah, yeah, yeah. sister's husband type thing, right? Yeah. And he lived about 20 miles away. So that weekend, we jumped in the car and we went to see him. And I remember he lived on a farm. He had a horse, a big old station, and the, the front door was like a like a barn door thing. And I opened it up, and straight in front of me was this giant framed citation and this silver sword with a green beret hanging on the end of it. And he sat me down. He was quite an intimidating kind of character. You know, I was very young at the time, and, and he was, you know, a lot older and more accomplished. And he started talking to me about the Royal Marines. And he told me about his career. He had gone in as a Marine, which is our equivalent of private. And he climbed the ranks to leave 22 years later as a captain. So he'd been all over the world. He'd, he'd gone from the bottom to the top. He'd, he'd done it all. And he taught me through it all. And he told me how the Royal Marines were very different to the Army Infantry, to the Navy, to the Air Force and everything. And then I went back that weekend, Monday morning, went back to the career center on my own saw the Royal Marines recruiter, and I always laugh because uh, I'm at that age now where I look back and start to feel old, but he got the VHS cassette and put it in the TV video combination thing <laughs> <laughs> and put on this uh, very, very well-used cassette and showed me this Royal Marines recruiting video. And 
my jaw must have hit the floor because I, I just saw these guys, right? They were jumping out of helicopters with, you know, fast roping. They were skydiving out of plane. They were skiing in the Arctic. They were going on speedboats, like assaulting beaches. They had these huge packs on their back and they were yomping for miles. And they were in the desert, you know, the woodland, the Arctic, the jungle. And I'm just looking at this video, like these men can do anything. Like, and it seems they can do it anywhere in any environment at, at the drop of a hat. So I sat there and literally after that video was like, if I want to go in the military, this is what I want to do. Cause this is going to push me to, to see what I'm capable of. And if I'm successful, it's going to force me to grow into the best version of myself that I can be. So I took that paperwork home, got it signed, took it back down, went back to school, uh, did my exams. Like I said, did pretty well, got my, my 10 GCSEs and uh, just waited because I knew my mind had been made up. I waited for a date to be joined. What you have to do in the, in the Royal Marines is you do a, you used to do a three-day potential Royal Marines course. So you go to the commander training center and it's a three-day thrashing and it is an opportunity for you as an individual to decide, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? Is this the lifestyle I want to lead? And for the guys that are taking the course to say, is this guy ready or does he need to come back after a bit more training? So that letter eventually came and I went and did a three day course and was successful. I passed that at 16 years old, first time, went home. They give you a little training program uh, which I stuck to like to the letter and it's, it's like a progressive training thing to get you ready for when you start your recruit training, went home and that was all I did. Like would, I would plan my whole week around, okay, I've got to do a booted run on Tuesday. I've got to do this many press-ups and pull-ups by Thursday. I've got to do this on Friday. And that was all I did until the next letter dropped, which came along and said, we'd like to invite you to start Royal Marines training in February 2001 and uh i had nothing else going on there, there were no other plans no plan b so signed the form sent it back started picking up bits of equipment and kit and february 2001 jumped on that train headed to the commander training center and started that journey to see if i had what it took to become a royal marines commander so where's where's the commando training center it's only 45 minutes from here in plymouth right oh, is that the... it's it's an eczema Okay. So, but I always say this to people. When I got there, it felt like I was on the other side of the world. It, it just like, even though it's 45 minutes away, I, I felt like I was on the other side of the world, a million miles away from all my comforts. Everything I knew and was, was comfortable to me was gone. And I was only 45 minutes on the road. So how long was that training for? So it changes all the time. Like back then it was 30 weeks if you did it in one hit every two weeks you'll get assessed and you'll be tested and if you fail you go back two weeks and you'll keep if you fail again you just keep going back you get like three attempts at each test period and then obviously there's the uh the possibility of getting injured which could put you back months and months and months so if you so do how, it from day how, one how long did it take you i did it all first time no failures okay. no injuries straight through okay and what percentage do so 64 of us started as what we call originals and 16 of us made it in one hit wow. the, the dropout okay. rate the failure rate the quit rate is massive um because it's so tough 
So are you a little bit like David Coggins and just like crazy for, <laughs> crazy, crazy for pain and punishment? I, I wouldn't put myself on his level, but from a mindset perspective, you know, with, with what he went through before, and constantly going through Navy SEAL training. Yeah, that's what I had to do as a 17-year-old boy was to adopt that mindset of nothing's going to break me. I'm doing this. This is my only option. I will not fail. And do you remember how much you were getting paid when you were doing that? What was your salary? <laughs> I think I was on, at the max, £800 a month. And uh-huh. most of that, you had to go into Exeter to buy kit and equipment with. Like little bits. Obviously, you get provided a lot of the basics, but there's all the little niceties, like a, a waterproof notepad or a special torch like for being tactical and you know things that don't get provided. So most of your money would go on kit and the rest is on beer. <laughs> that was it. It, so, was, it was pennies. But did it feel like that when you first got paid the £800, did it feel like a lot of money? Well, it was my first job. So absolutely, I was yeah. 17 years old. I had £800. I had a roof over my head. The food was all counted for. The dentist, the doctor, the gym, all that was included. So really, it's £800 in cash. But if you add all that in, you know, it's a lot more than that. But yeah, yeah everything was provided. And that money was so- more to do with what I wanted. How long into your training, that 30 weeks training, did you feel like you belonged? Probably the last two weeks. Oh, shit, really? I was was 17 years old, surrounded by men that were older than me. I was the second youngest in the troop. People, you know, I'm from Plymouth. I'd never really been anywhere. I'd never been anywhere on my own outside of Plymouth without my parents for me. And all, all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by... People from all over the UK, Australians, Canadians, Americans, people from New Zealand, they've all come from all over. It's, it's very, very overwhelming. And I always remember thinking from everything, from ironing my trousers to navigating with a map to, you know, conducting a section attack. Everyone seemed to know what they were doing except for me. In my mind, I'm like, oh, what are we supposed to be doing? And just, just muddling my way through everything. But I later found out that everyone was exactly the same, that no one really knew what they were doing. Everyone was just muddling through and doing their best to pass. But it wasn't until those last two weeks when you've done all the field craft, all the combat training, or you know, you finish off World Marines training with four world-renowned commando tests. Uh, you've got the Tarzan assault course, the nine-mile speed march, the endurance course, and the 30-mile run across Dartmoor. When I finished that, was when I thought, you know what, I can hang with these boys now. You know, I was 18 by that point, and I'd been able to keep up with those men all the way through. And I was in that last little bit of training, which is really just, you know, you do all the, the marching and the drill and, and the, the boring stuff. But yeah, literally right to the end is when I, I didn't feel like I belonged there. So did you feel like through that training, did you feel at all like you wanted to give up at any time? Was it time you were like, oh, sod this for a game of soldiers? Pretty much every single day. <laughs> uh, literally the, the first day we got there the light come on at five o'clock in the morning and we're up and we're getting shouted at and running around and again i'm 17 and then i've got 64 naked dudes running around beside me and i'm naked and i'm like what am i doing i want a bowl of cornflakes i'm watching teenage mutant ninja turtles what am i doing <laughs> this is not this is not how i live and uh it was like that all the time the, the pace was just so fast you know, I was a school kid still. And mm. then you come out of that initial two-week, what they call the foundation period, and then you've got to start learning 
how to use weapons, how to navigate, how to look after yourself in the field when you don't have showers and stuff. And I just felt like I was drowning all the time and just keeping my head above water every two weeks to be able to survive for the next two weeks. And all the time I'm like, there's got to be something better out there. I can get on the train now. I'll be home in less than an hour. You know, I'll, I'll go do anything as long as it's not this. But every, what I did was I ended up breaking it all down. So, you know, as well as being 30 weeks long, training comes in chunks and phases. So I, you could break it down into chunks and phases, then into months, then into weeks, then sometimes into days. And on extreme cases, I would break the tough days you know, when you've got like four gym sessions, an assault course session, feel I break that down into hours and sessions and just get like, I've got through that session, tick. I've got through that one, tick. Get to the end of the day and collapse and then just start again the next day. Cool. Mm. Wow. So then a lot of people join the military, but don't ever get to see active service. They get to do a lot of the great stuff, but don't get to see active service. And, and a lot of people join the military because that's something they really want to do. Was that something you really wanted to do? I think it was. I just didn't know it when I was a kid. You know, I, I just, when I sat and thought about it and I thought, right, these are the kind of options I've got. Like I can wear a suit and work in an office. I can go and just get, you know, whatever job, maybe a, a trade or a skill, be a plumber or something like that and kind of run my own routine. Or I can wear a uniform and, and represent my country. And when, when I sat down and thought about it, I always got a little bit excited when I thought about wearing a uniform and, and representing my country more than I did any other options. You know, and then when you couple that with my friends that I grew up with and some of the family connections and, and all that, it kind of was inevitable for me. You know, and, and I grew up as well in, in the 90s. I was born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s and was just like a big action movie junkie. So all my heroes, you Schwarzeneggers and Stallones, and even them, the Rambos and the Commander. I was just like, right, this is this is me. This is this is what feels right for me. I need to go do this. Okay, got it. So tell me, t tell me the next step. You've come out. You've you know you trained, you passed training, you start to experience life within the Marines. It's now your home. <laughs> everybody, everybody is, uh, 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 talks about the fact that it's there's a strong bond between people. There's a uh, a brotherhood, a connection. Mm -hmm. you, that's because you have a sense of belonging and that can happen in many different places, but in the Marines, it was for you. What was your first, what was your first tour? So here's the thing, right? So you, you just said, you know, many people will join the military and they won't see active service. So I started training in February, 2001 and I finished mm -hmm. in October, 2001. So we all know what happened in September, 2001 with the planes and the towers. So yeah. we were at that point of training where I just told you where I started to feel like I belonged. We were doing all the marching and the, and the drill, getting ready for the fancy parades. And we were having a break and we're all in the diner on camp, you know, grabbing a burger and, and, a, and a Coke. And we see this happen on the TV. So we're literally like, and, and it kind of felt like a game to that point. It's like, yeah, look at us. We're elite soldiers. Yeah, we're going to go and take on the world. Then all of a sudden the game becomes a reality as we all see these planes crash into towers and we're like, guess where we're going soon? Because we're not, you know, we've joined the elite branch of the UK military. If they're going to call anyone, it's going to be us. And, and that's what happened. You know, straight away after Christmas, early 2002, I got trained to go to Afghanistan, also called Operation Jakana. Now, I still don't know why, 
but literally did all the training and then last minute they went why are you not going now not not just me a bunch of us they, they kept a lot of us back so that was a little bit irritating because you know you're young 18 and, and you want to go out there and you're a bit brash and cocky so we ended up doing a couple of tours in norway and training out in the arctic uh, sailed down to america did a bit of boxing and everything and then 2003 rolls around and iraq becomes the big thing so I actually deployed on Operation Telic 1 to Iraq in 2003 and was involved in that initial push over the Kuwait Iraqi border that was all, all over the media. Um, and then worked there for three and a half months, um, involved in all that kind of stuff. I worked at a place called uh, Azubaya Naval Base, I think, in Unkazar. And a bunch of the other lads pushed up for the palace and the oil fields. And I didn't really see anything for the whole tour I was there, which was, I found a little bit strange because I had this image of what an elite soldier was going to do in a combat situation. And I did none of it personally. Like I got a really good suntan, saved a bit of money. And that was it. That was, that, that was my tour. <laughs> How long was it for? Three and a half months. Three and a half months, you saw nothing? No. And I actually removed myself from where I was working to attach myself to an army field hospital as a force protection for ambulance drivers and medics thinking this would be an opportunity because there's bound to be something that goes on in this kind of world, but nothing like for me, not, not one single shot was fired. So when I came home, I was a little bit like, and this sounds really weird now, now that I'm older and you know, I'm not into that old macho thing anymore. I'm like, seems a bit weird, but I was a bit deflated. I'm like, oh, I did all that training, constantly told, you know, you're the best, you're elite. No one's as good as the Royal Marines. You go to war, you're 19 years old. And it's boring for me as an individual, not for everyone, obviously, but I just thought, like, with what I've, the training that I've been through, they're going to throw us right at the, the sharp end of the spear. Do you know what I mean? But not for me. That wasn't my experience. So came back and was a bit like, okay, cool, I've done that. Um, in the first four or five years of my service, I had managed to earn the Green Beret, go to Iraq, go to Norway, sail to America, box for the Marine. I, you know, I fit, managed to fit a lot of stuff in. So um, after that, I decided to leave. You know, my, my partner at the time was pregnant with my eldest daughter, Kezia, who's uh, 17 now. So I decided to leave and uh, start a new career. No real idea what I was going to do. I just thought I'm going to come out now. I've got responsibilities. I want to be around for my family and uh, enjoy watching my daughter grow. Bought a house, you know, did all the things that you're supposed to do and things went south like they often do, unfortunately. We we separated. I spent, well, I retrained straight away as a bodyguard in South Africa and spent six weeks training out there to go into the coast protection world. I, I don't know why, I just I couldn't get my foot in the door there. I don't know if it was my age or my lack of contacts or what. But while I was trying to get into that world, I was working as a, a nightclub doorman down here in Plymouth. And it was just at the time that the whole industry was being regulated by the SIA. So they were trying to get rid of all the thugs and all the bullies from the, the previous you know 90s, 80s that were given a bad image and, and reputation to that industry. And the police were cracking down really hard, you know, and it sounds like an exaggeration, 
but I could literally get punched in the face and then get arrested for hurting somebody's knuckles. It was that bad. And I was, I just seemed to be constantly in trouble. Um, nothing was going my way. I was working for cash in hand. I was sleeping on my friend's sofa. You know, I didn't see my daughter. Uh, it was just terrible. And I thought, this is not the way I envisioned my life. And five minutes ago, I used to be a somebody. I used to have a green beret. I used to have a good bunch of mates. I used to have everything sorted and locked in and I was I had a career and everything. And now I'm living for cash in an envelope and going down to Morrison's to buy chicken for a pound and pasta for a pound and, you know, treating myself, if I could, to a bottle of Coke or something. You know, that was a treat. So I had to make a decision, you know, what I was going to do. I came to those crossroads that we all come to in our life. And I decided to rejoin. You know, I thought I've only been out as a civilian for, I think, 11 months at the time. So I knew that if I'd reapplied, there was no need to go through that 30 weeks training again. You just do your annual shooting test, fitness test, and, and the stuff that all the guys and girls do in the military every year. And then I'd be back in. So I went down to the career center. Uh, spoke to the recruiter, told him my story, signed the paperwork, and four weeks later, I was back in, uniform back on, green beret back on my head, ready to pick up my career where I left off. And how did it feel going back in? Must have been nice. Really good. Really good. And, and ironically, really safe. Because and I, and I struggle a little bit with this. I know some people will get what I'm saying, but the civilian world is is scary. Like, I don't know what it is. It's just unpredictable. You know, mm -hmm. everyone looks at, oh, I think a lot of civilians look at the military world and go, oh God, they're brave. I couldn't do that job. A lot of us look out and go, I couldn't do those jobs. Do you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's weird. And it just, it felt safe going back to, to what I knew, what I was good at, what I loved, the good people that, that had my back, you know? So um, I, I, I knew I'd made the right decision. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell, tell, tell me what happened. So you've gone back in there, you've got your beret on, you, now you belong again. What happens next? So I was, I was drafted to a place called 40 Commando in Somerset and Taunton. And they were, so at this time, Afghanistan had, had taken over from Iraq, and that was the priority. So when I went to 40 Commando, I was literally straight into pre-deployment training for a six-month tour of Afghanistan this time mm -hmm. uh, from September 2007 to March 2008, I think it was. So I literally hit the ground running, got back in, drove up, got a, got a room on camp, got stuck into training. We're traveling all over the country, you know, doing these training series, jumping out of helicopters, you know, practicing all our stuff. And uh, September 7th, 2007, I deployed on Operation Herrick 7 for a six-month tour. And, and when you got to Afghanistan, how did it compare to Iraq in terms of how it, how it looked? Not, not what was going on there, but how it looked. Was it very similar or very different? Um, I would say it was different. But this is funny, you know, like, I think Afghanistan's a beautiful country when you look at it. Like, you've got the sun, the desert, you've got snow-covered mountains, and just, it's, it's really, really beautiful. And when you initially fly in there, you go into either Kandahar or Bastion, which are these giant airfields, and they're very, very safe. And one of the things that kind of caught me off guard, because what was different to Iraq, was when I landed, they had like a Pizza Hut and a Burger King 
And I'm like, what are we doing here? Is this going to be the same? Like the Americans do it differently. And they had um, like Tim Hortons coffee huts. I think there was at one point an all seasons ice rink at one of these places where you could go ice skating like all year round. Yeah. And I couldn't get my head around it. And we went straight away to this like giant hangar full of bunk beds and air conditioning and nice showers and everything. But we knew we were only there for a couple of days. And like four days later, after we'd sorted our kit and equipment out and we'd acclimatized as much as we could, they threw us on a chin-up and flew us up to Helmand to a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson. And this was the other end of the spectrum. Like if you just imagine, I don't know if you know what a Heskel barrier is. So you imagine like a cage, like a fence cage uh, with a sandbag lining type thing, just full of dirt and sand. It's like a big ballistic wall, like Lego uh-huh. blocks. That's yeah. like, that's literally all you've got for protection. Then they the engineers build whatever shape they can with the terrain out of these Heskel barriers, either one or two high, it's either uh-huh. chest high or just above head height, and you live in there. It like just figure it out, and you live in there, and that's you for however many months, in in the heart of Helmand Province. Every day, bullets, bombs, RPGs, mortars, and everything you could think of. Like, and th- this was the opposite end of spectrum from Iraq. The minute we hit the ground, that there, there's fights going on all the time, all hours of the day, all hours of the night. Taliban were better equipped, a greater force. Um had been maybe underestimated at all when you got there, were you thinking, oh my God, these, this is proper enemy, you know? I, I underestimated, absolutely. Like, I think what a lot of people think is, is a bunch of guys running around with flip-flops and AK-47s underneath a dish dash. But what you seem to forget, what people forget is like, they're experts at using their terrain. And, you know, we'll come on to it in a bit. I, I imagine when we talk about what happened on Christmas Eve, but, if I knew now what, you know, what I know now back then, then it's just the mistake I made was so obvious when it comes to terrain and, and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, they don't have a uniform. So you can, you don't know who you're fighting ever. And they use the terrain so well. And you are new to it all. And you've you got maps and, and drones and all that stuff. But, you know, being there for years and years and years and knowing it intimately is very, very different to just landing there and trying to figure out from a map. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, no one, no one's ever won that war, have they? Russians, Americans, us, no one. You know, it's, uh, I don't think anyone ever will. It kind of makes me feel like you know, like we're seeing with Ukraine right now. You know, should by rights be totally overwhelmed by Russia, a much bigger nation, but they're digging in and they're fighting as best they can, and they're not and they're not conceding. And it's like they have something the Russians don't have. And that's, that's heart, you know, they want to protect right. their territory. And do you mm-hmm. think that the, the Taliban were like that as well? They're like you're in our backyard. All right. Just remember that you're in our backyard. Does it feel like that? I don't think it, I don't think it was so much that we're in their backyard. I don't think the location was the thing. I think, you know, their faith in, you know, whatever is, is strong with them. They're, they're very much into that. And, that gives them a, a real reason bigger than themselves to fight to the death. And you know what I mean? So I think mm. that is a huge thing that they have over other people. Is that Do you think that most, that most people in the military that go and experience that for the first time, you know, regardless of our army, Marines, whatever, when they see that for the, for the first time in the, in the early part of their deployment, that makes them think it's shit, man. Okay. 
this this is much more real than I ever imagined it to be. Yeah, I mean, it's bizarre when you're face to face with someone who doesn't fear death. You yeah, know I mean, they just literally don't exactly. care. I mean, they blow themselves exactly. up. They do not care that they, you know they in their faith they believe they're going to something much bigger and better, and they're doing it all for a good cause. And yeah, how can you win against someone like that? It's crazy. So yeah, it's a, it was a very, very different environment and conflict. So you get over there, you've been in your Tim Hortons, got your nice coffee, had a couple of days somewhere <laughs> nice. <laughs> you've downed a couple of pepperoni pizzas, and here yeah. you are lumbered out out, out in Helmand province in environments that aren't particularly nice. Was it hot or cold that time of year? Red hot in the day and freezing at night. Okay, so you're dealing with boiling hot days, dusty, dirty, freezing mm-hmm. at night. What was morale like? So in our company, it was pretty good. Um, you know, we were going out on patrols all the time. We were like trying to provide food and water and security for the villagers. They were, the majority of them were happy that we were there and they were on side and good, happy to see us. And we were trying to win the hearts and minds. We're coming into contact with the enemy on foot patrols or defending our positions and just whipping their ass like constantly. They, they never got even close to injuring any of us for like months, two, three months that we've been there. So our morale was pretty high. You know, I think the only injury that we had in that three months was one of the, one of the lads fell off the back of a truck and twisted his ankle. Um, <laughs> so morale was high. We, we were doing what we were sent there to do. We were helping as many people as we could help. Um, and people were happy. So then what happened? So... Our manpower got restricted slightly. Um, you know, halfway through a six-month tour, some people get ripped out to go on R&R, to go home for two weeks, and then they'll come back. We had that injury that I talked about. A couple of people had DMV. So where we were always mounting these foot patrols and going out of the base every day and taking the fight to the enemy, we, we had been restricted, and we were stuck in for a couple of days. So we were getting a little bit, antsy in there and we wanted to get out and, and carry on doing what we're doing because that disruption in pattern is, is a weakness for us and that, that's an opportunity for the enemy to attack and so we wanted to get out as soon as we could so a plane came a helicopter came in we got a couple more bodies we put them in the in the watchtowers and the sangers on camp and uh we got ready to go out on a patrol so it was christmas eve 2007 we were called up to the headquarters compound at about six o'clock in the morning and given a brief. We went back to our compound and did what we always did, prepared all our kit, equipment, put mm-hmm. radio battery, all that basic stuff. And then we went up back to the headquarters compound and we formed up by the rear entrance of the camp and we got ready to leave. Now, the funny thing is prior to this patrol, all the ones that we've been on, were two, three, four miles out, five, six, seven hours at a time. You know, this is your mission. Go disrupt this location. Go destroy this weapons cache, that kind of stuff. The idea with this one was that we would just leave the rear entrance of the camp in two sections, but eight men in each section. One would go north, one would go south. We had patrolled around the immediate perimeter of the camp. We got told you don't push more than 300 meters from the perimeter wall. Then we meet at the front entrance of the camp. 
secure the location, close things down and finish up for the day. So compared to what we've been doing, this was the most basic low-level thing that you could ever ask a soldier to do. Very easy. And we, we had had no intelligence from local sources to give us any cause for concern. We, as far as we knew, were on top of everything. We knew where people were trying to plant IEDs, where weapons caches were and everything. So we thought, okay, cool, we'll get out, we'll stretch our legs for the first throw, and then we'll start going back into these more in-depth ones. So the time came, they opened the rear entrance of the camp and we left. I was second in command of the section went north. The other ones went south and we did what we were tasked to do. About five hours into it, now at the front entrance of camp, my section was in on a high piece of ground, what we called the North Fort. Now, just underneath that, when we looked down, we could see Ford Operant Base Robertson, like a kind of semi-bird's eye view. And then beneath that, on the main dirt road that ran through the area, was the other section that left earlier in the day. So because we're on this high ground, we're in a very tactically advantageous position, not just for observation, but to fight too. So our task was to give protection for the other guys well, they came into camp, they got behind that Heskel barrier wall, they were protected, they returned the favour, everyone goes back and safe. Standard, normal, routine stuff. This is where it comes into what's talking about the use of the terrain. So we're on this high feature, and the section commander starts taking his half of the section and giving them fire positions. Now, I take my half of the section, and what you would normally do in this situation, if, you're, if you go far on a patrol, is you want to get behind a building, a wall, a tree, a shrub, whatever's going to give you some form of protection. Because we're up on this ridge line, we didn't have any of that. And mm-hmm. in front of me was a little bowl in the ground. So I thought, okay, if we get in this bowl in the ground, we get on our stomachs. If you're looking up, you're not going to be able to see us. If you know we're there, it's going to be very hard to engage us, especially with like small arms, AK-47s, that kind of stuff. So this is the best form of protection that we've got given the environment that we're in. So I jumped in the bow, the lads started taking their fire positions. I stood back for a little while. There's a couple of checks you've got to do and, and observe what everyone's doing, make sure that we're tight and in all around defense. Yep. When they were happy and I was happy, I started slowly walking over towards a position that I set for myself. And as I went to get down to my stomach and I put my right knee on the ground, that was the minute that I knelt on, detonated an improvised explosive device. So you remember what I said about the use of terrain? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this, when I look back on it, that is the most, that they know that you're going to want to take cover somewhere and that's your only option. So it's the perfect place to put IEDs, isn't it? But you, when mm-hmm. you know, I'm 24 years old, young, you don't think that way. You just like, right, how can we get the safest possible place that we can be in? And uh, unfortunately, what was safe for me was a perfect place to lay IEDs for them. So yeah, I knelt on this ID, it exploded and uh, ripped off both my legs below the knee and my right arm above the elbow. Immediately? Um, kind of. So all of the, both my feet were gone. All of the flesh from my tibia and fibula was gone, but the bones were still there, connected at the kneecap. It was almost like you could just snap them off at the knee. And the heat must have been so extreme that it, it just incinerated all the muscle and flesh 
It's, you know, like, this is going to be a weird comparison. You know, like you see a, some spare ribs and you can just pull the bone clean out and the, the meat yeah. falls off the bone. It was like that. Like the meat had just fallen off the bone and there was just these broken, like shattered tibias and fibulas covered in dust and sand and blood um, from my legs. And then my arm was ripped from the bicep to the wrist, torn open, all of the forearm and the bicep. The bone had been shattered. There was nothing left. My hand was still in pretty good nick and it, the arm was still attached to my body but it was completely unsalvageable like all the bone was gone it was just trashed and then this little bow that we were in after i've read the report that the american special forces guys that we were working with had written it was 12 feet deep by 15 feet around and there were six other devices scattered around this area so so you this happens you're unconscious straight away you obviously nope. don't know what fully conscious throughout everything the whole thing so this happens and you're wide awake the whole thing yeah everything up to the minute i got put on the back of a helicopter okay so tell me what happened you're oh man it makes i know it's a weird thing to say it makes my knees go when i hear this kind of stuff okay. so you've had your legs blown off your arm blown off but not almost and you're still fully conscious yeah did everything go into slow motion at that time? What what kind Ex- of well, what can you remember? All right, so the first thing is it's, it's a very surreal experience, right? There's not much pain. There's a lot of discomfort, like an extremely intense pins and needles in my three limbs, but I wouldn't call it pain. Your adrenaline is that it's, it's spiked, right? your brain is trying to process what it's looking at, which I think is made more difficult by the fact that you can't believe what you're looking at and then you can't believe that it's not painful. And it's very surreal. It's almost like, you know, when you've had four or five pints and yeah, you're, you're not, not completely wasted, but you're not sober, that kind of feeling. And you just kind of look around and you can't comprehend it. It's like a dream. And you just sit down and you're thinking, what am I looking at? That, that's what I remember thinking, like, what is this? What am I looking at? This doesn't make any sense to me. Do you know what I mean? I'm Mark Ormond. This doesn't happen to me. I'm the guy that's, that survives everything. How is, what, have we been attacked? What's going on? And that was my initial reaction. When the, the dust and everything had cleared from the explosion, I saw what happened. I thought we had been attacked. And prior to the dust clearing, what I was trying to do was turn around because behind me, down on the low ground beneath us, there was a little forestry area. And everything around it was just mud fields. So I thought we've been attacked. It's come from there. I'll start, I'll identify what the enemy is. So all the lads can start firing and we'll neutralize it. But I couldn't, I meant I couldn't turn around. And it wasn't until the dust cleared that I realized why I couldn't turn around. It's when I looked down at my legs, looked at my arm and they were gone. You know, and I kind of, it was bizarre. So when I looked at the blood, and everything coming out, I thought, this is it. I, I didn't panic. I, I felt calm about the whole thing. But in the back of my mind, I knew I was going to be fine because I, I knew that those lads with me would never, they would do whatever it took to get me out of there. Now, I also knew that we're trained in that situation to override your emotions because what you want to do is run in and help your mate who's suffering. Yeah. But we're trained not to do that because 
there might be other devices. There were six other ones around there. But we're told, you know, you don't ever run into that situation in case there is something buried that you can't see. And then you'll kill yourself or you might kill the casualty. So I knew they weren't going to be coming quick, you know. And this is something I always say as well. When you drill these scenarios, nine times out of ten, you'll mess it up. But when you need to do it, when it's real and someone's life's on the line, it's phenomenal how professional people act. Give, I, mean, I can't comprehend what those lads are going through, their emotions, their thought process, the fear. But they did everything perfectly. And they got to me within a minute. And the medic was at me within a couple minutes. And he put tourniquets on my legs, a tourniquet on my arm. He shot me with morphine. I, I, now I, I started to feel a little bit of pain. So what he did was he, he put the stretcher out, like a tablecloth type stretcher, because we're in this massive crater. And he put his hands into my armpits and he dragged me onto the stretcher. And I felt like, I guess it would, I mean, I imagine if you put a, a screwdriver under someone's kneecap and started ratcheting down it, that's what the pain felt like. So I, you know, I said, look, put me down. I looked down to my right leg and there was like a thin strand coming out, like snaking in the sand, covered in blood and dust. And it went into my boot. So I picked my boot up and my foot was still in there. And I guess this was a nerve or a tendon. And where he dragged me and the weight of the boot and the foot had pulled this tendon and caused the pain. So I had to put my own foot on my stomach with what was left of my arm, you know, kind of just flopping on this stretcher. And then I don't know how, because I had my eyes closed. They got me out of the crater, off the high feature, put me in the back of a vehicle, the vehicle's going at Mach 10 across the road. And these are not tarmac roads. These are like very bumpy, sandy roads. The Taliban or ISIS, whoever, you want to, whoever it was, actually blocked the road of a truck to stop me getting through. I found only found this out a couple of years ago. And because you don't know who they are, because they all wear civilian clothing, you know, you, you can't really do anything. Our rules of engagement don't allow it. So luckily, we managed to swerve around it and smash the back of that out of the way. And we start driving up the incline to go in the front gate of the camp. And because of how loose the ground is, you have to be quite aggressive sometimes when you're driving. Otherwise, the vehicle would slide under the loose footing. Yeah. So the driver is like you know, left and right, accelerate as hard as he can. And then a medic fell out the back. Now, I'm high at this point. I'm morphine. So I, I, I don't feel any pain and everything to me is funny. I don't got a care in the world. So I see this guy tumbling out the back and I'm chuckling to myself. And then I went out after him. Now, as the bottom of my spine hit the tailgate of the vehicle, the driver <coughs> swung around, put his arm out and just grabbed whatever he could grab to keep me in. And he ended up grabbing the femur bone coming out of my right leg. Oh. And kind of, kind of held me half in, half out this vehicle. And then uh, he, he left the medic and the medic was fine because that other section of eight heavily armed men that we were with were at the bottom of the hill. So he was safe. So he left him, drove me to the helicopter landing site. And the last thing I remember is the, the storm, the sandstorm that gets created from the propeller blades, yeah. the heat coming out of the exhaust and the mechanical noise of the tailgate as it dropped. And that's when I blacked out. And later on, 
found out that they had classed me as dead. Wow. That's some mm-hmm. story. It gets even better. I can tell you the next bit. Come on. No, I don't remember any of this, but I've met all of the, the medics that were on that helicopter since that day. And now what happens with a casualty in a, in a wartime situation like that, you, you've got different classifications of, of casualty, right? So if you've got a guy that they class as dead and a guy who could be dead, as harsh as it sounds, you leave the dead guy and you put all yeah. your effort on the guy that could be dead because you don't want two dead guys. So they they were feeling me for a pulse and they said I didn't have one. They tried putting uh, intravenous lines into my veins to give me fluids, but they collapsed because of the blood loss. And then when they put an oxygen mask on me, they said it should steam up to show that you're breathing, but it didn't. So they literally pushed me in a corner and left me and classed me as dead. Well, they all got to work on um, one of the other guys that was injured. Now, he had shrapnel in his back and in his tricep, so it wasn't life-threatening, but you never know what, what could happen. So they're like, right, this guy's dead. Let's put all our attention on this guy. Luckily, one of the medics walked past me to get some equipment that he was going to use on the other guy, and he said that my eye fluttered, which to them meant that my heart was still beating. So he alerted some of the other medics. They came over to me, and three days before this incident, the, the, the people in charge of the Army Medical Corps, if that's what they're called, had given the green light for this new technique to be used, where if you can't get intravenous lines into somebody's veins, you can drill into their tibia and fibia and administer fluids that way. Problem being, I didn't have a tibia and fibula anymore. They were there, but it wouldn't have worked because they were just trashed and smashed and so these medics now, they, they've got this glimmer of hope. They're like, right, we're going to his tibia and fibula. Then they're like, we can't because he hasn't got any. So what they did, they made some very courageous and brave decisions. And they drew it into my hip, one in the front, one in the back. They put an intravenous line in through there. And within three minutes, what, I was awake. bone? Into, straight into the bone. Yeah. Yeah, straight into the hip bone. And what are they trying to get? They're trying to get into the, the center of your, your bone. I have no clue. They're just they're administering fluids. So normally you go through veins. You just, you just think. think about that. They can't, yeah, you go through veins. You, if, if you're going into bone, though, where's, where, where's the fluid going? Is it, I have no the clue. Cent, center of the bone's moist, isn't it? The center of the bone is soft. Wow. I don't know, but I know, I know I it mean, works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> I don't care what they did. I know it worked. So you're then three days later, you wake up in hospital. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I was in a drug induced coma for three days. Do you wake up? You wake up and in Birmingham? Selly Oak in Birmingham. Yeah. Selly Oak. Okay. And what's your first, what's your first thoughts or or memory of waking up? What do you remember? So it's it's probably like one of those movies where you see people getting rushed into the ER and they just see the blurry lights in the ceiling. So I, I remember I was trying to open my eyes and I remember mm. it being a huge struggle and like I had no energy. It was like someone had put lead weights on my eyelids and I could right. hear all these people around me and I recognized the voices. I recognized uh, my family. I recognized Becky and everything was echoing. 
So every time mm-hmm. they said something, I would hear it three times. And I had this oh. mask on and I started choking on the feeding tube. I was like, yeah. gap. So they ripped it off, pulled all that out. And uh, Becky started talking in my ear. She's like, are you, are you okay, Mark? And, you know, not telling me anything what happened. And uh, I have no clue. Well, I, I have a little clue why this happened. But um, when I heard her voice, I proposed to her, like in a 15-second brief moment of consciousness. She couldn't hear what I was saying because I literally couldn't speak. I was exhausted and I was like muttering something. And she was getting, she said, I'll come closer. And then she said, did you just ask me to marry you? And I just gave this little crooked smile and fell back to sleep again. I was out, just exhausted. <laughs> yeah. And I had been, so I had been writing a letter to her dad when I was in Afghanistan, you know, going old school, asking for permission. And it was in an ammo container under my bed. And I was meant to send it the day that I went on that patrol. So I'm, I can only think that when I woke up, that was my first door. And I could hear her, even though I couldn't see her. So I was like, I didn't really even know where I was or what I was doing. But that was just the th- first thought that came to my head. Wow. So tell me, how long were you in hospital for? Six weeks. Uh, and did a week in when you when you were in hospital, when did you start to realise your 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 real predicament? What 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 you were facing? How long were you in there for before that really happened? It was really strange, right? I don't know if it was planned this way or it was just luck, but that first week in intensive care, the way they weaned me off the medication and brought me back into the real world was like perfect for me. Like to begin with, I thought I had lost both my feet and some fingers on my right hand. And then like the next day I understood a bit more. And then the next day I understood a bit more. And I remember like day seven, I, I pulled this arm out from under the duvet um, and started chuckling. And the nurse was like, What's the matter, Mark? What's so funny? I said, oh, this medication, I'm hallucinating again because I had hallucinated a lot. I said, it looks like my arm's falling off. And she just looked at me and she didn't need to say anything. I'm like, okay, right, I get it now. Because I'd been, if I had an itch anywhere on my body, I was using my right arm to relieve it for the whole time in there. But I didn't even have an arm. Like the power of the mind. And I was like, yeah, wow. I've been itching for like a couple of days using the arm. I don't even have the arm. And then when she looked at me, I was like, okay, now I understand after these seven days, both legs above the knee, my dominant arm above the elbow. Right, I'm good to go now. I, I, I understand. So Now, a lot, a lot of people, and you know I've spoken to Alex Lewis, who's a quadruple amputee. A lot of people, well, people go in different directions, don't they? There's, there's a bit of sadness, then there's loneliness, then facing up to what life will be like, and then depression for some people mm-hmm. when they when they go into that situation but and some come out the other side of it uh, quite quickly and some don't what was it like for you emotionally having to face this in the beginning it was rough you know a lot of it was to do with my ego i'd gone from being you know 24 years old six foot two exactly yeah like one of the fittest soldiers on the planet going around doing what I, I called good work, you know, getting rid of bad people and looking after good people. And all of a sudden, in a, in a split second, everything's taken away. My career, my life, my personality, not, not my personality, my, the way I identified, you know, mm-hmm. my physicality, 
Mm-hmm. And it was gone. Mm-hmm. And there I was like, I'm only 24. I don't plan on dying until I'm at least 110. That's a long time to be a triple amputee. And to kind of get my head around that took a lot. You know what I mean? And you go through a, a lot of strange emotions. Like you feel a bit of guilt because your friends are still out there doing that job that you should be doing with them. But you're, you know, I was, I was going to say like kicking it, kicking back and chilling out in hospital, you know, getting spoon fed by nurses while they're out there yeah. struggling. Um, so yeah, you, you feel a bit of guilt. I felt a lot of shame and embarrassment because we, we get trained. We, we can go toe to toe with anybody, right? Guns, knives, fists, whatever it is, as, as Royal Marines, that's what you're trained to do. But I almost felt like I'd been beaten by an inanimate object, a lump of metal in the ground when it was embarrassing. Do you know what I mean? I was like, because I used to think you got to be pretty dumb to stand on an IED. Because is, that honestly, is that honestly what you used to think? A lot of us do, because you, the, the sand and the ground in Afghanistan, it's not like a beach. It's not soft sand. Like It's hard. So if someone's digging in it, the, so, the ground sign is obvious. But I think what had happened in my case, where we're in this boat, where it had been raining, it, it smoothed everything out, and there was no, no chance in hell that you could see it. There's a lot of there's a lot of indicators. Like sometimes if they they plant an IED close, it there'd be little piles of rocks. That was an indicator to them, and we knew all these signs, um, so we knew what to look for. So I thought you got to be pretty dumb to stand on one of these things. And then I did it, and then I'm lying in hospital, and it's not like a computer game. I, don't, I can't reset it and start again and go. Mm, oh, I'll be better mm, next time. Mm. That's it for life. So I felt quite embarrassed. Um, that's why I didn't have anyone visit me for for a number of weeks because I just, you know, I, I'm not. It's not that I, I'm not a crier, but I just I, I thought if any of the lads come in now, I'm just not going to be able to control myself. I'm just going to burst out crying because of embarrassment. So I, I told everyone I didn't want to see anybody, and just kind of dealt with things myself for a little while. And did you feel like a failure? Yep. All all sorts of stuff. What people don't understand, they don't they don't get it. Like absolutely like a failure. Like I said, you're you're trained to be one of the most badass soldiers on the planet, and now I am lying in hospital with three limbs missing. There was a time in my life where I was clinically depressed and wanted to kill myself, and mm-hmm. I planned how I was going to do it. It was all organised and whatnot, but it was one of the calmest times in my life. Mm. So I'd gone through this this extreme desperation and loneliness and lots of these types of emotions to a place where I'd made peace with everything. And I just needed to carry out what I needed to carry out and get it done. And mm. you think about people that are, that are depressed and, 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 and suicidal. And a lot of the time they say that if you're, if you're too depressed, it's too big a chore to go ahead and do it. It's like too much to go and yeah, do I know. it. Okay, you mean. Yeah. And so that calm that came over me, I found that when I, as I look back on it now, you know, it was 10 years ago, I, can't, I look back on it and I find it a very strange emotion. So as you talk about this now, is your, the feelings that you had, that, that they're not necessarily logical when you look mm-hmm. at it in, 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 its, in, in its entirety. But when you think about it emotionally and you explain it the way you do, it does make sense. It's like you're sitting yeah. there, you know, I, I never knew that you have to be pretty stupid to stand on an IED. The fact mm-hmm. that you say that, and all of you guys mm-hmm. would talk about that, 
that makes a lot that makes a lot of sense that you just you felt the mm. way you felt did you are you one of these kind of guys that that, that that suffered with mental health issues and got yourself into you know a really dark place for a long time or have you, have you always been a kind of positive and optimistic kind of chap and uh, uh, found your way out of it in a relatively short space of time I would say I've been very lucky in that I haven't suffered with that, but also to take a little bit of credit, I've been very proactive with it. So like I, I was surrounded with amazing people from the minute I woke up in hospital to help me, support me, guide me, mentor me. And then I took that same thing that made me feel embarrassed and you know, like a failure, I flipped it when I went to rehab. And I went, actually, I may have lost three limbs and felt stupid about that, but now I'm going to show the rest of the world why the Royal Marines are the Royal Marines. And I'm going to take a shit situation and I'm going to show you what we're about and I'm going to nail this and break down the barriers and do what people say that you can't do with three limbs missing. And that motivated me to go through my rehab. You know what I mean? I, I I'd always did been, you, did you, always did you when you when, when you were there did you set yourself goals then so when you into rehab do you say I'm going to give myself is it yeah when I look at goals for me a goal is very simple I look at the longer term the what the outcome needs to be and then I break it down into bite sized yeah. chunks and then work yeah. out all I need to do today and then just own what I need to do today and as exactly. long as I get that done then eventually the goal will be achieved is that how you looked at it yeah the very first thing I did the day I got to rehab because my unit was still deployed they had a month left then they were going to come home and get 10 weeks leave. Then they would go back to 40 commando. And we have a medals parade where all the families of all the, the men and women attached to the unit will come and a VIP dishes out the medals. The day I got to rehab, I said, when they, when the lads are back on parade, I'm not going in a wheelchair. I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with them and get my medal pinned on my chest, stood upright. So every day in rehab was about 1% gains, one more step, one more hour awake because I was still fighting fatigue and it takes it above me amputee, double above me, three to 500% more energy to do anything than anyone. So I was constantly exhausted in the early days, just walking and, and sleeping and walking and sleeping and trying to sort my nutrition out and my recovery out and just making 1% gains in all those areas so that when that day came around, I, I achieved that and went out and walked on the parade ground. It wasn't pretty. Because I hadn't mastered how to use prosthetics, it was pretty ugly the way I was walking, and it was unbelievably painful to be stood up for forty-five minutes with how raw my limbs still were. But that was my goal, and I knew that after that day, if I could do that, then I, then I could do lots of stuff in lots of different areas of my life if I just set goals and, like you said, break it down and do it chunk by chunk until it's achieved. And do you have the mindset of, you know? Once you knew you could stand up, guess what? That's now box ticked. I can stand up. So that's not in question. Now I can walk. That's box ticked. I can walk. So now that's not in question. I can't, I can't relapse on that. I've proved to myself I can do that. So now that's a mm -hmm. given and, and so on and so forth. Is that, how, is that how it works for you? Yeah. And then you just take those things when you tick the boxes and then you work on improving them. Yeah. You know, so now I can stand a little bit longer. Now I can walk a little bit better, you know, and because walking is quite, it's very complicated. Uh, when you've got legs, you take it all for granted. But for me now, 
cambers of road, stepping off pavements, going up and down stairs, up and down ramps, getting in and out of a car, up and down off the floor. They're all different techniques that you've got to learn and figure out yourself and then get better and better and better at day by day. So rehab is like still going on now. Every day is a learning day still now. Tell me, tell me how you've used your experience to help others. Well, initially it was, and I was very cautious of this, right? So I was the first triple amputee from Afghanistan and the UK. Uh, unfortunately, by the time I left, I think there were 33 of us that were triples and loads more doubles and singles. But I was visited by a guy in hospital who had been blown up in Iraq in 2005 and lost both his legs above the knee. And it really helped me change my mindset because I'd physically seen what was possible. And I knew that once I'd got stronger and fitter and was given my legs, I could achieve something similar. So whenever guys or girls are coming through the system, if I got the call, then I'd go up and see them. I'd never just turn up and be like, you know, look, I'm here. Everything's going to be fine. I think that's really arrogant. And not everyone, everyone is ready at a different time. So mm. initially, when I got the call, I'd go up to the hospital. I'd visit people, spend some time with them. I did it in the civilian world as well. Eventually, people would mm-hmm. reach out from there. Then I got into like speaking. So I'd travel mm-hmm. the world, either at schools or corporates or wherever, and tell my story on stage. Mm-hmm. I wrote my first book. I'm trying to write my second one now uh, and get that out of there. And we've got a movie being made. So these are all great personal projects, but my drive behind a lot of them is exactly what you just asked, is to, is to get out there and help people. You know, I remember being in that hospital having so many questions. I didn't even know anybody who had lost a toe or was in a wheel. I didn't know one from the disabled world. And I had so many questions. And I just think the more information you get out there, the more you share the story, there could be someone in a month's time sat in a hospital in a similar situation to me. You can listen to this podcast and be like, there's hope. Do you know what I mean? Is, do you think there's an element of it being therapy for you as well, helping others? Yeah. I mean, people always used to say in the beginning, do you not find it hard retelling your story? And I'm like, no, not at all. It's therapeutic. I think it's quite cathartic to go out there and, and read a bit. And I'm very lucky that I do remember it and I can retell it. And I think that's why I don't suffer with like, what a lot of the guys do is, you know, flashbacks and all this kind of stuff. Cause I remember it all and I'm perfectly happy talking about it all. So I think it is a form of therapy. You've raised a lot of money for charity. Mm-hmm. You've Fair been in the Invictus, you've been in the Invictus, Invictus games. Yep. Do you, do you feel, you know, I'm trying to, it's like, in, in very simple terms, and forgive me, I'm not a military person. It's like you were this bulletproof action man in your real life. And then you went through this terrible tragedy or situation. Do you feel you live as good a life now or a better life now? Do you think your life has more purpose now, more meaning? Um, or is it as equal as it was before? Just give me an idea about that. About that. I think definitely more purpose now. And I don't know. I, I always try and figure out, is that because of my situation or just because I'm older? Do you know what I mean? Like when you're younger, you're very yeah, yeah, selfish. Yeah. You don't really care about other people and helping and inspiring or any of that stuff. And as you get older, you realize it's really important to do that. Um, but I, I would say it's, 
you never know the but I think it's better now than it would have been had this not happened. Reason I ask that is that even though Alex Lewis wasn't in the in 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 the in the military, it's like my, his life had meaning afterwards. The work that he was able to do to raise money for prosthetic limbs, the the, the, the adventures that he's been on since, you know, mm. it made him realize he just, it, it, he was existing rather than, you know, that's different to you because you were living, but he was existing and he, and he loves his life now. And he feels very grateful that he has the opportunity to do what he does. And you know, you've got to, you know, what did you raise? 50 quid, 60 quid. What was that? How much you raised? Are you talking about last year or in total? Over the in years? total, in total. I think it's about 4.5 mil. Maybe 4.5 million. It's hard to go. I've never, I've never tracked it. I, I, I tracked last year because we set out on a bit of a random mission, but in the 10 years previous, I've, I've just done stuff. Next one, next one, next one, next one. But I think it's about 4.5. That's a, that's mega. You do, you do acknowledge yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's cool. And it's, um, like it's a, it's a it's a nice way to do something with my situation. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I'm okay. Hold on a minute here. Four point five million quid you have raised. Yeah, I guess so. Over, over, it's, but this is like ten years, ten, eleven, twelve years. Doesn't matter. That's four hundred and fifty grand a year if you want to do it per year. That's still <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a shit ton of money, man. That really is. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Like really phenomenal. Tell Thank me you. about um. Uh, before we finish up here, tell me about the Invictus Games. What has that done for you? How have you enjoyed it? I know you've been, you, you, you're like the, the, the Tony Hawk of the Invictus Games, all the bloody medals you win all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a funny one, you know. So prior to uh, joining the military, I used to compete as an amateur in kickboxing and Muay Thai and boxing. Okay. And they, they, they were my sports. So when I was injured... I had no interest in any of these adaptive sports. I actually found them quite condescending. I'm like, I was a martial artist, a Royal Marine. I'm not doing a 100-meter sprint and getting patted on the back by someone going, oh, aren't you so lucky or aren't you so good? You know, I, I just, I hated it. And everyone used to say to me, it was bizarre. Like, I used to get in these conversations with strangers. And in the first five minutes, it, it was always like, so when you did the Paralympics then? And I'm like, is that... What you have to do when you become disabled, you have to be a Paralympian. And I, I went that opposite way. I'm like, forget sport, it's rubbish. I'm not doing it. And then in 2016, at Christmas, I was sat right where I am now, and I'm drafting up my goals for 2017. And I realized that Christmas Eve 2017 was my 10-year anniversary. So I'm like, okay, what can I do to celebrate that that I haven't done before? And the only thing I hadn't done was sport. I just swerved it the entire time. So the Invictus Games was two years old. I had seen my friends go out there and compete and win medals, which was brilliant. But what impressed me was because I knew them away from the Invictus Games and I'd seen them be low and cut, and then they then they're like this and their you know their confidence is up, their life's got better because of sport. So I was like, right, okay, I'll give this a shot. So I applied, and I honestly didn't think I'd have any chance. There's like 650 people applied. I wasn't in any of the cliques, any of the groups, never done anything with sport before. So I'm a complete stranger and I managed to get through. And then I went to the training camps and I, and I battled my way through them. I'd never done any of these sports before because they just weren't in my world. And I just, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. And I just muddled through. 
Okay, but how many sports have you done in the Ibexis Games? Rowing, swimming, hand cycling, <laughs> shot putt, and discus. <laughs> <laughs> One or two. But, but my mindset was, I'm just going to do the ones that require a high level of cardio fitness, and I'll just destroy everybody. So I thought rowing, hand cycling, swimming, I'll just win everything. And I was so stupid. Like I, I didn't think you needed technique or strategy or anything. I'm like, I want a rowing machine. How much technique can be involved? You just go backwards and forwards for four minutes. But I was massively wrong. That's why the first year wasn't the success that I wanted it to be. And I had to go back a second time to pick up those gold medals because I just, I don't think outwardly I'd embarrass myself, but inwardly I'd embarrass myself by being arrogant, thinking I'm just, I'm a Marine. I'll go and smash everything and underestimating the the gravity of the task. What message do you have for anybody that might have maybe not got to the same place as you through an IED, but anybody that's suffered the loss of limbs through a million different ways that's going through a tough time. What kind of message do you have for people like that, that might be listening today about how they should maybe position it in their mind, look at it and look forward. I think the most important thing is that people understand that every single person's situation is individual to them. So I've got friends with triple amputees and on paper we're identical, but in real life we're worlds apart, not just in terms of our injuries, maybe limb length, you know, one of my friends has got no muscle on both of his legs, so he's prone to infections a lot. Everyone's completely different. So don't look at some other amputee doing things thinking, why can't I do that? It's, they're worlds apart. You have, to, you have to mold your situation to suit you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So never, ever be hard on yourself and be like, well, that guy's doing this. Why can't I do that? That girl's done that. Why can't I do that? everything's individual and unique and you're on your own individual journey. Do you know what I mean? And you've got a, you have to explore yourself on the journey mentally and physically. You need to be around really good people. You know, it's not easy to do, but you have to kind of be selfish and, and especially in the beginning and get rid of the people that make you feel shit. The people that tell you you're dreaming and you can't, walk upstairs with double above knee amputations and just leave them people and, and concentrate on you. Look around for you for inspiration, jump on the internet. That's what I did. I found a triple amputee in America doing phenomenal things. And he mentored me and got me to be wheelchair free on the 9th of June, 2009. Never used a wheelchair since because of him and his team. You know, you've got to set goals. We talked about that just now. You've got to have goals. And I don't mean just like get up and go to rehab. I mean, why are you going to rehab? What do you want to achieve while you're there? You've got a very limited window of time with these professionals. What do you want to achieve? And in the most respectful way possible, when we talk about professionals, don't take everything that they say is gospel. Because if I did that, I'd be in a wheelchair now, probably overweight, drinking, not living the life that I'm living. Go out there, use the internet. There's there's information everywhere. There's support everywhere, resources everywhere. Go out and find the people that are doing what you want to do, people that live in the way that you want to live. Reach out to them, find out how they did it, and go and do it for yourself. When you interview somebody like Mark and imagine what he's been through, and then you see that 
positive mental attitude, that kind of glass half full attitude, that can do attitude, it puts a lot of us into a place where we should take a long, hard look at ourselves and understand the misery that we create and talk around in our life that isn't really comparable to anything that someone like Mark's been through. And if he can be positive, then we have no excuse. And after listening to him, I've got no excuses. I really haven't. If you're listening to this on iTunes, then please leave us a five-star rating. If you don't, then I'm going to come and find you. <laughs> um, if you leave it listening to this on any other podcast app please leave us some love some feedback what are we doing right what are we doing wrong give us some love let us know because it helps more than you could know i'll see you on the next episode